1: Well I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy to be here at Southeastern Seminary and uh, to look out and to see you. What a joy to be here with my uh, dear friend and friends. And I want to begin right there. Uh, just to tell you that uh, I feel this morning like I am among friends. I don't feel obligated to say anything. I'm just going to tell you, you just, uh, you don't even, you don't even have to look happy or anything. I'm just telling you that whether, whether you want to be or not uh, actually we are friends. And uh, in in a sense that's explicable this way, Uh, Danny Aiken is my friend. And if, uh, if you are his, then you are my friends. Now the reason why I want to say this is because life is short and population's huge. And you need certain shortcuts to know where you are welcome and where you can be you. And, uh, and one of those things is you can, uh, you can feel right at home amongst the people uh, of your friends. Following that, here's a little piece for you, a little piece of advice, you need friends. And uh, I, I knew that when I was 10. But that's a lot different than when I'm about to be 57. Takes on an entirely different context. And and when you have been through life the way I have now been through life, I can tell you, you need friends in a way you probably don't know now you need friends. And then I wanna put it in the context of ministry and mission, you especially need friends who are friends in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and friends in the calling uh, of that, that great commission and, and, and who are friends in the tasks of ministry and in terms of all that is required of a pastor and the, the centrality of preaching. You need friends who care deeply about who you are and what you do to the glory of God. You need friends who care deeply about your heart. And you need friends so close to you that you don't know who you are without them. And, and you need friends who are going to be with you during times of happiness and joy because a friend can share joy like no one else. And, and who will be with you in times that are filled with sorrow or, or strain or stress or tragedy because then you need friends who stick closer than a brother. So when you think about all that you're going to be doing during the time you're at Southeastern Seminary, I just want to encourage you in the most straightforward sense, make sure you leave here with with a few devoted friends with whom you will share friendship for the length of your days. And I know that in high school, people think they have friends. People in high school have friends, maybe. Uh, You're going to have a hard time coming up with their names shortly. In in college, it it ramps up a bit. You really do have friends. But in seminary and an experience like this where you're here for shared calling, And and you passionately want to encourage one another to faithfulness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And and at this stage in life where so many things happen, these are friends for life, you need it that way. I don't know who I am but for the friends the Lord has given me. And at the very top of that list is Danny Akin, without whom I don't know who I am really after all those years of friendship. And uh, he is an example of what is in the Scripture, a friend who is closer than a brother. So I'm glad to be here. And… but you rejoice in each other's family. And uh, uh, Danny and Charlotte were way ahead of Mary and and way ahead of me on the grandchild thing, but we are catching up in intensity what they outweigh us in number. It's a great club to join. And by the way, that's another sign of that friendship when you all of a sudden realize you have been friends long enough that… Those whose diapers were changed are now changing diapers. (laughs) That's to the glory of God. I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. You're in such a wonderful place here at Southeastern Seminary and Southeastern College. You are exactly where the Lord would have you to be as you're preparing for your ministry and getting ready for maximum deployment in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are… You are wearing God's providence. You now find yourselves, exploit every opportunity. Don't miss out on anything and recognize what a rare privilege it is. And understand that there are, there are young men and women all over the world who would give everything they know and everything they have to be in a place like this for even a week. So don't waste it. First Kings chapter 18, we're going to begin in verse 17. This is one of the most familiar texts to us in terms of Old Testament narrative. It's a, it's a text to which I now want us to return. And the only way to handle this rightly is to read it completely. 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because "'You have abandoned the commandments of the Lord "'and followed the Baals. "'Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me "'at Mount Carmel.' "'And the 450 prophets of Baal "'and the 400 prophets of Asherah "'who eat at Jezebel's table. "'So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel "'and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. "'And Elijah came near to all the people and said, "'How long will you go limping "'between two different opinions?' If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, "Ah, even I only, and left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, "O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud for he's a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Answer me that this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and looked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there." This is the word of the Lord. First thing we need to do is to admit that this is every middle school boy's perfect biblical text. It's got everything a middle school boy is looking for drama action characters fire <laughs> bloodshed and potty language all <laughs> all in one biblical text perfect the second thing we need to note is that this text does not have points It's less true now than it was true once and for many decades that evangelical preachers approached every text as if it were Romans chapter 1. And they approached every text as if it were the same form of literature, and in every text they asked the same question, where are the three points? Now, in many texts, especially, for instance, in Paul's letters, that would make perfect sense because following the the Greco-Roman literary and uh, rhetorical conventions, actually many of these passages do fall down in just that way. And the reason why it comes to us was made clear even long ago by Aristotle in terms of his rhetoric and understanding how arguments are to be made. And it's a part of God's common grace through wherever humans are found that there is roughly the same kind of breakdown in terms of some arguments that are made. Whenever a speaker gets up, be he Caesar or, well, I'm not going to mention the name. You know who I'm talking about. When you look at this and you, you, you look before us and you see so much that is going on, this, this particular season in American life, and, you, and, and you, you try to imagine, how do we put this in context? And you say, well, how far back can you go? Well, we need to go back to the text of the Word of God. And we need to go back to something that helps us to gain our bearings, especially in terms of the beginning of an academic term for a theological seminary and for a Christian college. The key issue here is where Elijah makes the point, if God is God, if the Lord is God, then follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow Him. This is narrative. You you preach a narrative by letting it narrate. One of the most important things you need to do in terms of preaching a text like this is read the text. And I do mean read it in its entirety. This is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. It's also the verbally inspired Word of God. It comes to us in a shape, a particular shape of words, the shape of which and the sequence of which are a part of the biblical revelation and its perfection. And so don't get up and tell the story, get up and read the story. Get up and read the story the way the Holy Spirit of God gives us the story. And, and a story does have a point. This story certainly has a point. But don't try to break it down into pithy principles for Christian living. This story doesn't end with a bunch of newly invigorated happy saints It ends with the recovery of biblical sanity. But it also ends in a slaughter on a creek. I don't expect Joel Osteen to preach this passage. (laughs) Just doesn't quite fit that you can somehow put on a smile after verse 40 and say, y'all go home and be happy. (laughs) Doesn't work. The characters here are... Inseparable from the story. And as is almost always the case, the context helps us to understand this. First of all, Ahab. Chapters 16, 17, and 18, we've got so much about Ahab. Chapter 16, verse 29, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord. More than all who were before him. Now, let me just tell you, just read backwards and find out what that means. It's a spectacularly horrifying statement. He did more than all those who came before him. And and just read of the evils of the ones who came before him. And then it's amplified in terms of the text. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, merely, we might say, an idolater, As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. It's hard to imagine anyone more emblematic of exactly what Israel, what Israel was warned a king would be when the Lord warned Israel that he must be their king and not a human king, but Israel demanded a king. And the Lord said through Samuel, you just tell them if you demand a king, a human king, then you will have a king, but once you have him, you will not want him. And then Jezebel, my goodness. we. Ahab's sinfulness is described in the terms of the fact that if it weren't bad enough that he followed in the sins of Jeroboam, he went on further and married Jezebel. Now, just in terms of, of, of the context of biblical history, when you hear that name, a chill is supposed to go down your spine. Jezebel. The, the name itself, by the way, is not exactly an accident. You learn that in class. But she is the daughter of Ethbaal, the king priest of Tyre and the Sidonians. You don't have to know any Hebrew yet to recognize that if your name is Eth Baal, you are associated with Baal. little footnote, by the way, I grew up deep in the Southern Baptist Convention, which meant deep in Southern culture, and Southern culture is not friendly to the linguistic construction known as a diphthong. And so I grew up with Sunday school teachers telling me about the idol Baal. It is a diphthong, it is Baal. He doesn't exist so he won't be offended but we should at least get it right. <laughs> at every turn, Israel was told not to marry the, the pagans around them there in Canaan and, and, and here you have not only an Israelite but the king who has defiled his kingly authority and defied the word of God and and set the most horrifying example for his people by going outside, marrying in terms of a dynastic kind of arranged marriage, the kind of thing that's more about foreign policy than romance, marrying Jezebel. And she came not alone, but with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. Now, we know, as you fast forward in biblical history, how Jezebel met her end, and uh, that, was a, that was an awful end, a must-deserved end. She outlived Ahab by about a decade, inflicting herself upon two successive sons. And, 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 and by the way, every one of them was dominated by Jezebel. What Jezebel wanted, Jezebel got. And what she wanted was the prophets of the Lord massacred. And they were massacred, except for the fact that Obadiah hid some away, and for the fact that the Lord wasn't going to leave Himself without a witness. It's hard to imagine two names that should cause a greater fear instinct and revulsion instinct, not only in Israel but in the church, than Ahab and Jezebel. But then there's that name Elijah. We know so little about his background. We read in 17 verse 1, now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. So all we really know about him is that he came from Tishbe. Therefore, the only thing we can say about him is he's a Tishbite. Saying that he's the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead is kind of like saying, I'm the Floridian from Florida. That's all, that's all that we need to know. There are six major narratives in the cycle of Elijah, but the interesting thing we need to note is that he shows up as a transitional figure and and, and as this magnificent prophet of such courage, usually. Uh, But but certainly a man who was ready to stare down the king in terms of his idolatry. And and time is short, so we aren't able to follow all of this out, but the most amazing thing about Elijah is actually not what you find in 1 Kings It's not even what you find in 2 Kings, where he is translated into heaven in a chariot of fire. The most amazing thing about Elijah is how he shows up on the lips of Jesus. One of the major messianic prophecies of the Old Testament is found, of course, in Micah. If you look at Micah, the closing verses… Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus turns to his disciples and asks that, Question: Who do they say that I am? The answer that comes from the disciples is the very accurate speculation that they've heard amongst those who have heard Jesus or heard of Jesus and and observed Jesus in his ministry. And they said, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. The Jews most decidedly did not believe in reincarnation. They did believe in the continuation of a prophet's mantle, something that was made very clear to the people of God by Moses before his own death. And there was the expectation that though Jeremiah died, the prophecy of Jeremiah and the ministry of Jeremiah would be ultimately fulfilled in another. And of course it was, most specifically in Christ, where the new heart becomes the new birth. Similarly, we could look at at Isaiah or or others and recognize how that, that prophetic message was picked up and all of it makes sense. Isaiah, Jeremiah... Elijah, one of the prophets. In Matthew chapter 17, in the transfiguration, we read in verse 3, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking to them. And if you're thinking of two figures from the Old Testament who would be brought as testifiers to the messianic, and divine identity of Jesus as the Son. They're in that privileged place of the transfiguration, whereas Peter will say in Second Peter, we were eyewitnesses to the divine majesty. Who would they be? Well, Moses is easy to come up with. That, that, that's easy, but the other is Elijah. By the way, at the end of Malachi, there, there is a statement about Moses and obeying the commands of Moses that immediately precedes the promise about the coming of Elijah. So, as we see in Matthew chapter 17, The disciples themselves weren't sure what they had seen. In verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? It's not just the scribes who say that, by the way. It was really Malachi, the prophet, who foretold it. He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and that they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. To put all this in the flow of biblical theology and in the flow of biblical history, as we look back to 1 Kings 18 and come to understand there's more here than meets the eye, and it fulfills a bigger... A bigger role than just to get our attention as something of a battle of the gods, which it certainly is. This is this is not just some kind of ancient theological conflict that comes down to two altars and and the challenge to see which god is really god, and unless we'll answer by fire, this gets to the very heart of what it means to know God at all, and to know what is at stake in the question. The conflict between the worship of the one true and living God. And idolatry is as ancient as we can imagine, as is made clear even in the opening chapters of Genesis. But what we must keep in mind is, it is as relevant and as current as some conversation you will have today, hopefully not with yourself. In the ancient world, there was at least the benefit of understanding more clearly what idolatry was and what it represented. And even when we look at, at 1 Kings 18 and we think of that incident at Mount Carmel, it's very easy for us to imagine, well, you know, that, that's a, that, that was a very demonstrative theological argument. And, and God, the one true and living God, Yahweh, He showed His power by sending the fire and by making clear His identity. But there's, there's a lot more than that. For one thing, we usually don't take idolatry seriously. We know the right things to say, like John Calvin made clear, the heart is an idol-making factory. We we, we, we know the Ten Commandments. We, we, we know that we are to shun idols. We, we, we read about the dangers of idolatry in the Old Testament and the New, and we see that not only is there a battle of gods in the Old Testament, but it shows up in the, in the New Testament. It's not only at Mount Carmel, it's also in Ephesus. Yeah, we, we, we understand that. But do we really understand what's going on here? At the heart of idolatry is almost always the elevation of, of some human figure or of some human image, whether it be visual or physical or not, of of, of some human capacity to an idolatrous exaggeration. And in the ancient world, you didn't have to wonder what you were looking at. But all at the very top of the Canaanite pantheon was a god of power and sexual potency. Potency. He was believed to speak in the thunder. And one of the necessary elements of the success of a civilization is thunder, which is emblematic of rain and the bringing of rain that would water the crops and bring forth fruit. All of this is understood to be by the benevolence of of Baal. and, And so all kinds of rites and sacrifices and incantations and practices were undertaken in order to get Baal's attention, in order that he would be happy, and in order that he would bring the rain. Another part of what's necessary for the success of raising crops, or even more importantly, raising animals, or even more specifically, producing and raising human beings is sexual potency. You didn't have to wonder when you saw a carving of Baal what they were worshiping. Same thing with Asherah, known by other names as well. If Baal was about sexual potency, then she was about fertility, and you didn't have to wonder what she was about. One of the ancient pagan impulses that comes right down disguised in today's headlines is the worship of fertility and and the urgent concern about fertility. These days, sometimes avoiding it or aborting it. But nonetheless, it is the understanding that fertility is central to what it means to be human and it has a power and a necessity that also brought forth the worship of the Asherah You didn't have to wonder what she was about, by the way, because she was presenting as a a huge womb and a nursing mother, everything exaggerated. When I was in college, what was then known as the Baptist Sunday School Board had the bright idea to come up with a Bible dictionary. Uh, Southern Baptists hadn't had one of our own before. They thought it was a great idea. They they came out with an illustrated Bible dictionary they had to recall it. Uh, it was sold for a very short window of time because they brought together a bunch of Old Testament, New Testament scholars, and they brought together archeologists, they brought together photographs and they put up all these pages of photographs of these pagan idols and I guarantee you, it instantly became the most checked out book. <laughs> the most checked out illustrated Bible encyclopedia in history soon as the middle school and high school class got out, that was the book you wanted to check out. It included in it everything my mother ripped out of National Geographic before I could get my hands on that. And, and what does that tell us? It tells us that when you leave human beings to our own idolatrous devices, that's what we will worship. We will worship sex, potency, fertility, power. We will worship it, and, 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 and though we are far more sophisticated to carve idols, or at least perhaps we might think ourselves so, the explosion of the internet is really the explosion of Baal and Asherah. And of course, added to that must be Molech, the god whose moral impulses required the sacrifice of innocent human beings. And that's why when they were extending the runway in Damascus a few years ago, archaeologists found a pit in which there were hundreds and hundreds of bodies of babies between the ages of one and two whose legs had been broken so that they could not crawl out of the furnace of fire as they were thrown in to be consumed, to placate the moral outrage of Moloch. We'd at least like to think that if we we were Israel in the time of Elijah, we would be able to look at these practices. We'd be able to even gain just a sight of these idols. We would think that we would have the theological instinct that we know exactly whom to worship and we'd have the revulsion rightly directed towards the idolatry and we would have the gratitude rightly directed toward the God who is God and who does not demand the sacrifice of our children but rather tells us to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And the Lord who gave us the sexual gift, the reproductive gift, and who, who does bring rain, but does so because He loves us and does not demand what the Canaanites were doing, but rather is revulsed by it. That's the amazing thing. When you look at, at First Kings chapter 18… Look at verse 21. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? How how can you limp between this and that? How can you, how can you kind of limply? It's not an accidental verb. How can you, how can you limply move back and forth between the worship of Yahweh and the worship of Baal and Asherah? By the way, the limping shows up again because after Elijah has taunted them, when Baal does not answer, when he... Suggest that maybe it's because he is uh, musing or thinking or relieving himself or gone on a journey or asleep. You'll, you'll, you'll notice that they were limping, and in, in verse twenty-six, just before this, we are told there was no voice, no one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made. Yeah, you know, that's what idolatry looks like—just limping, and, and, then, and then it leads to cutting where they cut themselves in, in order to get Baal's attention, which never came, even with the blood gushing down their bodies. This, this question haunts me. How long will you go on limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So why this text today, time is, time is gone, it, it, it's this. Every time you read the Scripture, every time you hear a sermon, every time you're confronted by the Gospel, every time you hear and read the Word of God, the question is, what are you going to do with it? At the beginning of a new academic term for a seminary, I can't think of a better text just to share from one heart to another. Every time you hear a lecture, every time you read a book, every time you take a class, you you need to ask yourself. When you hear all that's presented, does that result in limping between two different opinions? This is not Southeastern Baptist limping theological seminary. This is a seminary that declares its allegiance to the truth of the gospel, the truth of Christ, and the truth of every single word of Scripture. You can't imagine anything, anything more horrifying than a seminary that limps, except for the fact that those graduates will go out and limp in their churches and produce limping churches. And all around us is the evidence of what happens to that. The the, the, the limping leads to death, just as it does in this passage. There's so much just in the literary character of this passage. when. When Elijah sets forth, if the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal then follow him, the people didn't answer him a word. They didn't have anything to say. They're, they're not even quite up to limping. When, when he does suggest the demonstration in order to find out who is God, they say, that's a good idea. Why don't we come up with that? But when the fire falls, all that is involved in this passage the people finally gain their voice and they say, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Long ago, I figured out that theological liberalism is just an organized way of limping and and, and it it comes up, the same thing comes up again and again and again. The the tendency to say, yeah, I know that's what the text says, but let me tell you what it means. The the effort to try to find some cultural explanation that will relativize the text. The the effort to try to find some way to smooth out the hard angles of Christian doctrine into something that will be less abrasive in terms of the society around us. But the reality is that not only… Not, not only does that represent dishonor and disservice and disobedience to God, it ends in disaster for those who follow that course. Because it comes down to this. It will always come down to this. If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. If you believe that Baal is God, then follow him. Go follow the priest. Go, go, go live according to the rites. Uh, Throw yourself into the idol worship with abandon because if Baal is God, then that's what you got. But the key issue is this, if the Lord is God, then follow him. It's hard to imagine a more basic, concise statement of the gospel than that. If the Lord is God, then follow him. So that's my exhortation to you, just live in this. We're not standing at Mount Carmel. I have to admit, I'm still a middle school boy. I would love to have been there. But by God's grace, we don't have lesser, we have better. Because we get to read this text given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and go back again and again and again and again. We get to be with Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah. We get to be with Moses and we get to be with David and we get to be with Peter and Paul and we get to be with Jesus. If the Lord is God, then follow him. Period. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are so thankful for all you have given us in your word. And I pray that I and we and all your people will know and declare always, the Lord is God and Jesus Christ is his son and thus we are saved and thus we follow, amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you're thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies,